This is available as a podcast and a webinar. <laughs> this is not available for Kojet credit. Aww. Five or six years ago, um, we started them on the morning of the bench meeting, uh, and this was, believe it or not, is a way to encourage judges to drive downtown for our bench meetings uh, before we discovered how to do virtual meetings and um, uh, hybrid, in hybrid meetings. Uh, and it, it was it started initially for the new judges. Uh, and in fact, it was called the New Judge Roundtable. Mm -hmm. And then some of the not new judges uh, also wanted to attend, uh, but they didn't want to attend something mm -hmm. called the New Judge Roundtable. Uh, so now we're called the JP Roundtable. Uh, so um, welcome to the JP Roundtable. Uh, and it is, we do occasionally have people from outside Maricopa County join us. Uh, and um, we've also, will record many of the portions of this little recording now. Uh, and that can be uploaded to YouTube at a secret link that um, I will forward only to judges. Uh, so, um, and if there's something that you don't want to, that you want to say that you don't want recorded, let us know. Uh, and actually Judge Germain is, is controlling the recorder uh, because of the limitations of doing this hybrid. Uh, so just let, let us know and we'll stop the recording uh, so that you can say something that will not be saved for all of posterity. Uh, any questions before we start? Okay, uh, so this is actually our third update uh, uh, from all the changes in 2022. And, uh, you know, in this one, I had to call everything new as new again because it, 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 at this point, it's just getting ridiculous. Uh, but in addition to the statutes and rule changes that went into effect on January 1, we had a couple of propositions that. Uh, took effect uh, on December 5 uh, that we hadn't included in prior uh, updates. Uh, we had we had some case law, uh, and then the Supreme Court also met on December 5 or 6 and quickly adopted a couple rule changes that went into effect on January 1 that just immediately rendered that great big brand new book called 2023 Rules that you hadn't even opened yet is already invalid. So uh, that's why we're doing this everything new is new again. So remember there's part one and part one is mostly the statutes. Part two is um, the statutes and lots of rule changes. Uh, Judge Jim Blake does a case law review at the judicial conference at uh, this year they they gave him more than the usual 30 minutes but we go ahead and give him 90 minutes so he <coughs> runs through all of the criminal cases occasionally he'll throw a civil one in um, but runs through all the criminal cases and so we have recorded that uh, the one he did for us is available on youtube as well and these are hot links so if you click on your packet you can find them and so our first big change is our new judges and you know, judge Mueller's not here okay so well uh, we have 
Dick yes. Mueller is, is here. He's trying to get his thing to work. If not, he might have okay. the misfortune of sitting next to me for the meeting. Okay. Well, we, we might want to bring him here so he can introduce himself. And if uh, do we want to record the introductions or do we want to turn the recorder off when we do the introductions? I assume no one has an embarrassing introduction, right? <laughs> well, you're introducing yourself. Well, I guess I guess maybe the legislature. <laughs> so why don't we start with Judge Germain? So, hi everybody. Uh, I'm Jennifer Germain. I am the Justice of the Peace for the San Marcos Justice Court, and I am excited to get started. Okay. Uh, Judge Rebecca Rios. Good morning, everyone. Rebecca Rios, Judge Rebecca Rios, um, uh, South Mountain Precinct. Honored to be here and trying to integrate everything that's being thrown at me. So, <laughs> Judge Jennifer Sama. Hello, Jennifer um, Sama. Well, Jen Sama, since there's another Jennifer, I'm going by Jen. Okay. Um, Thank you. I am the new downtown Justice of the Peace, and I look forward to working with everybody and I'm super excited and like she said I'm just trying to <laughs> learn everything and absorb as much as I can. All right and uh, as of last week our newest judge, Judge Sherwood Johnston. Hi, the new kid on the block, Sherwood Johnston. <laughs> I think I know most of you. <laughs> All right, and uh, has is has Judge Mueller joined us yet? He's attempting to log on to his computer again. So, okay. All right, let us know when, when he gets here. All right. So, uh, in addition to the new judges on January one, we also have some new precinct boundaries. <coughs> Judge, Judge Huberman, you can address this one. Um. So. Way before I was ever the presider, we uh, knew that uh, because of the, the time of, you know, every 10 years when the census is done and there's re precincting done, uh, the justice courts uh, started working on the idea of changing the boundary line. Our boundaries are not actually dependent on population. So the fact that it went with the census was sort of irrelevant. Uh, but I guess that was the time that everyone else was doing the changes, and so that's when it came. Uh, it, was, it was easier to do together with the voting precincts. and um, So this was a process that was started before I became the presiding judge, uh, but we did have a lot of discrepancies um, in the caseload amongst the justice courts, um, and so that was the criteria, was to try to equal them all out. The objective was to try to get everyone to 900 JPCs, which is how we measure um, workload for the precinct boundaries. We could have another whole roundtable on if that's the best way to do it or not, but it's, it's what we have, it's what, it's what we use. Um, of course, we weren't able to level them all out at 900. Um, there's only so much that you can domino you know, move the lines one way. At some point you hit downtown, and if you move the lines in some precincts one mile, you've done away with the precinct altogether. And so it, it was difficult to kind of play around with the numbers. 
we have what we have. Um, we'll see. I mean, I personally think that we should have actually at that point tried to advocate to get a new justice court, complete new justice court in the West Valley, uh, because there's just no <coughs> way that we can continue evening out those lines to make anything in the, in the West Valley. Um, have, you, have you noticed any difference in your evictions? So my staff has told me that the runner came the other day with a stack this high, mm -hmm. and they braced themselves, and he said, nope, these are for all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's that right now, that's all we have seen. Um, so I think to this point, the, the idea is that it is, the eviction actions have to be filed. The, the, in civil actions, regular civil, if they are filed in the wrong precinct, that can only be changed if there's an actual uh, request by one of the parties. So even if you realize that it shouldn't be in your precinct, uh, without an affirmative defense of lack of jurisdiction, you need to keep that case. But evictions doesn't work that way. Evictions have to be filed in the precinct where the property is located. So I have been reaching out to the law firms. Uh, the, the, the landlord bar is pretty well organized. They have a large um, association and they do updates and they get together. And so I'm pretty, I, I'm pretty confident that they have worked out. And a lot of them, they do these by computer system. So all they really needed to do was to update their, their maps and their computer system to make sure they were filing in the correct precinct. I'm not terribly concerned about them. I would be a little concerned about the smaller law firms, the occasional person who landlords who come occasionally to court, they're used to going to Country Meadows or they're used to going to Arcadia. And so those are the ones that you probably need to check. Uh, so I guess the, the guideline is to make sure that the staff is 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 checking, uh, at least for those, for the smaller law firms and the propers, checking that they are filed in the correct precinct. And to tell them when they file that it's in the wrong precinct so then they can take it to the correct precinct. Um, do you have another one? The criminal cases, um, also, we can only... Uh, here, criminal cases that are filed that that where the action occurred in or well, the criminal act occurred in our jurisdiction. Um, those I've also reached out to all the law enforcement agencies and told them I I have no doubt that they're going to take forever to realize the changes. Um, it, they're just they're very slow on the uptake on that. Um, you're gonna to have to be a little bit more aware. What, uh, fortunately, there was a new law that came into effect a couple years ago that now allows the courts to transfer cases to the correct precinct when you realized it was in the wrong precinct. Before we weren't able to do that, you just had to dismiss them. Now you can transfer them, but they have to be transferred within 30 days of the arraignment. So, and I know there's a lot of courts that don't do this. My suggestion, is to be sure that your arraignment is no later than 30 days, that your pre-file conference is no later than 30 days after the arraignment. 
to make sure that the state then has an opportunity or somebody has an opportunity to catch it before the case is <coughs> I know there's courts out there that set them 45 days out or 60 days out. I'm just saying this is a best practice. No one is saying you have to do it unless, I don't know how heavy your, your caseload is, unless you want to make sure that your staff is verifying each one of them. No. Um, My caseload is pretty high, but that's why they do it. Right. I'm just. I'm not telling anyone what to do. I'm just giving suggestions as, as to what the best way to do it. Um, because the state used to be less <coughs> in tune to this also, but lately, last year, I would say they've been more cognizant. And I, I do get more motions now to transfer to the correct jurisdiction because it was filed in the wrong place. Yeah. Um, and as long as you're within the 30 days of arraignment, they can do that, and then you can grant the motion again. So, so yeah. we we got one of those requests on Friday. So mm -hmm. I was wondering what that was because several of our large apartment complexes got moved to the Highlands district. Oh. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I'm assuming that's probably what happened. Right. And and what I what I what I will say the problem, and I, I think Charles and I have been going over this. There is no remedy for civil traffic. Civil traffic filed in the wrong precinct. There's we don't we couldn't figure out if there's any type of remedy. So I would guess the remedy is to dismiss the case. I I mean I would guess that a lot of people just pay them a lot of defensive driving school and they never know that they were in the wrong precinct. But if you catch it, I don't see that there's I don't see that there's any remedy. You haven't found any type of remedy either, right? Well, no, other than just to keep in mind that for civil or criminal, if any part of the offense occurred in your precinct, it is in the proper precinct. So just be careful about right. that. I mean, I, for example, I share a boundary with <coughs> Arrowhead on the 101. And so anything like a little bit north of Northern, they, many times they get it wrong. They'll, they'll file in my precinct. But if I see that they were traveling uh, northbound, they had to have gone through my precinct in order to be stopped um, on the 101 north of Northern, then you can consider that part of it was in your precinct. Just be cautious because you don't know, you know, when, when they spotted it, when they, uh, but you know, that, that that's, a good, that's a good way to look at it. It's right on the border. And all of these changes, none of them have been more than a mile. So everything should be within the yeah. Is that what you mean by any part where maybe they were speeding in your jurisdiction, but then when they stopped and they were the other one, right. it was a seatbelt. Right. Oh, seatbelt. I'm just wondering it. Well, no, if the violation is seatbelt, then no. Well, I'm, I'm giving examples of you said speeding in your precinct and then mm -hmm. another violation when they actually stopped them, when you say any part of the violation. No, what he's saying is the speeding had to have occurred in my precinct. Before yeah, they were yeah. stopped to the other one, not because there was another offense. No, but, no, but then they give another. They, the uh, seatbelt thing was in, in another her. jurisdiction. Yeah, I don't know. Well, stopping her for speeding. Yeah. So for speeding in one area, area and the other, when you finally stopped, it was another violation. That's what I was trying to figure out. That's the same violation. They're being stopped the for same. speeding, mm -hmm. and then they also have the seatbelt is added on, but they were stopped for speeding. So she's saying if they were speeding and stopped in the one district, they must have sped through hers. 
I was just trying to figure out exactly what Charlie meant when he says speeding. Well, what, what that means is the officer yeah. saw you speeding in one precinct and stopped you in the other precinct. But for so you can be charged in either precinct. Okay. Right. And you know, they, they'll do that occasionally. And maybe with some of the new judges, they may not cite your precinct if they're close to the line. Mm -hmm. Uh, because until they get to know the new judges and sometimes worry about them. Or they don't like the judge of the precinct that they had and you'll get all of them. <laughs> all right, and uh, we have now been joined by Judge Mueller, so do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah. Judge Mueller? Okay. You're muted, Chris. All right, you're muted. <laughs> we'll keep waiting. All right, so interest rates went up on December 16. And so just for everyone's information, because uh, I will get furious, uh, a series of emails every time it breaks in the news that the feds are going to raise interest rates. The way the statute is written, it has to be published. Uh, and there's a specific place where it has to be published before it goes into effect so that everyone knows exactly when it goes into effect. Uh, and so, and that normally happens on Friday afternoon, generally between one and one, uh, one and two. Uh, and so uh, when this happens, I'm on top of it. I actually will set my <coughs> phone to, to ring every 10 minutes uh, so that I can check that site and let everyone know exactly when the interest rate has changed. And by state law, <clears throat> the judgment must have a numerical interest rate. It cannot say uh, the legal rate. Uh, it does have to have a number. All right, Judge Williams says, with the new precinct boundaries, some courts eviction calendars may no longer be practical. In his case, he'll be moving cases from one landlord law firm from 130 to three in an attempt to keep cases from running into each other. Thank you. Uh, and then for stipulated judgments. Yeah, I, I will say, Gerald, that my focus has been trying to get less cases, but I, I understand that there's some judges will get more. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, well, I'm sure he's picking well, up. Well, that was sort of the point. Uh, I have a. Um, <clears throat> Uh, what? We well, cut off. Gerald, you started to talk and then. Well, you I, I started yourself. and I, I thought it sounded like Judge Chevron was going to say something, so I stopped. But uh, um, I picked up. Oh, oh, uh, ahead, I, I picked up a, a square mile from Manistee. Um, and we, we do try to equalize workloads when we redo the boundaries. And I asked the, the law firm that had the one, one o'clock cases. I said, well, how many um, evictions does this one complex generate each month? And he said between 40 and 60. And that was a clue that I needed to move my 130 cases someplace else. So that's that, that's what happened in, in my case. We, we did, a, I just picked up the square mile from Manistee, but the, the, the intent was so Manistee doesn't have the ungodly eviction uh, calendar that they had in December. Thank you. All right, uh, Ken. So Charlie, I have one um, declaration. It's a 
<coughs> financial um, service for car for cars. And they always go to small claims, no matter how big it is. They, they just bring it down to 3,500, but they never put an interest rate on there. So I, I just assume that it defaults to what the interest rate is at the time. Should I put it in, fill it in? You should be putting an interest rate. Okay. So I, to alleviate up. any any confusion. Okay. I see them all the time that say zero. And they and that's I'm and, okay with that. I yeah. would say though, be careful if that happens because a lot of them that don't want to add interest rate. That's what I'm wondering. That's well, but a lot of them that don't want to add interest rate, they tie they put the interest and the principal on the same amount of the judgment. So what you want to be careful is that if you're gonna add the eight point five percent interest, you're not adding interest onto interest. So if they combine principal and interest, they want zero, then you're, that's that you're well, the same thing, yeah, I mean, the, the, Like the credit card companies do, they'll yeah. just say zero, and so they'll give you one amount that includes principal and interest. I don't care because I'm not adding interest to it. But if they want an interest added, you need to make sure that you have differentiated your principal and your interest because <coughs> you cannot allow interest on interest. Yes, no, no, I know that it's, um... They just, for some reason. I think it's, I think both of the time they put it because yeah. they don't want interest added. But I did have a case the other day that I didn't have the interest and came back and said, "Why don't you ever add the interest?" I'm like, "Because you don't put it in there. I assume you didn't want it." It's a challenger financial. So anybody else get those? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, re the the reason I put this in here that it must have a numerical interest rate, which can be zero. Zero is a numeral. Um, is that it, it can't just say at the legal rate or you know at the highest rate allowed by law it has to have a number i've seen unusual ones too where someone may ask for as low as five so are we still bumping those up to 8.50 because they didn't even have it at the previous interest rate or the if, if you are signing a judgment that is other than the stipulated judgment you should be and they're relying on the legal rate of interest that legal rate of interest is 8.5 percent and for for new judges who are concerned that we're raising interest, I mean this changed about 10 years ago. It used to be 10 percent, and then it and then it got tied to the prime rate. And for years it was it went down, and it went down as low as 4.25 percent. And now in the last couple of years it just shot up. Um, but it it you know this rate can change, and right now it's going up. Uh, and then the statute was also changed because of Prop 209. And with garnishment rates, there's a lot of argument over when the garnishment rates go down. We have a best practice, and we're going to get to that. But for medical debt, it is clear that, and then and Judge Reagan's going to ask about, well, what is the definition of medical debt or services? There is a definition of that as well. Um, but for medical debt contracts on or after December 5, 2022, and we're not going to see these for a while, but those contracts, the, the interest rate cannot be higher than the lesser of the annual rate equal to the weekly average one-year constant maturity treasury yield as published by the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System for the calendar week preceding the date when the consumer was first provided with the bill. Four or 3%. <laughs> okay, so, you know, the great thing about the legal rate is that is the one that gets published on Friday afternoon at 1.30, okay? So we can tell exactly when that is. I don't know how in the world we're going to figure this out, uh, you know, if, if it's 
six years after the breach of contract, and uh, when they were first provided a bill, how you're going to figure out what the weekly average one-year constant maturity? No idea. They're just going to use three percent. So. Mm -hmm. Figure that out. All right, the community restitution rate went up uh, because the minimum wage went up. It got round, uh, so the minimum wage went up to 1385. That will also become important because of Prop 209. Uh, and so the community restitution rate goes up to $14. Uh, there's a link on where you find the minimum wage. And then just as a reminder for civil traffic, uh, not criminal, you can, uh, you can assign someone community restitution and criminal against their will. But for civil traffic, the defendant must agree and you shall determine the location. Now at the GOHS conference, the AOC actually made it sound like you had to give a specific location such as um, 740 East Tacoba Drive, and I will leave a bucket and sponge out so you can wash my cars. Uh, you know, for those of you who can see where the problem is, is I'm specifically going to assign my church or, you know, my my uh, Rotary Club that you are going to do the nonprofit for uh, the the uh, community service for. There's a problem. So our best practice would be to suggest that. Your location is nonprofit in Arizona. And don't be more specific than that. All right, there's a new 1% surcharge on clean elections, and that was because of Prop 207, not Prop 209. And that went into effect for events on or after December 5. Uh, we have a new logo for Maricopa County Justice Courts. Luckily, it's not the uh, cactus giving you the finger. <laughs> but um, we are sticking with the county seal uh, and because we're not allowed to do it in color not because we chose not to <laughs> yeah. I mean just to be clear it wasn't a decision Charlie going back to the minimum wage <clears throat> I know that when they have to determine the amount of garnishment that with Prop 209 is it just starting um, we're, we're, we're going to get there. Okay, okay. We're going to get there. All right, so um, here's the updated chart adding the 1%. And so most of you have seen this before, so that is for your reference. All right, and then yeah. we're going to just double back on some of the important stuff that went into effect in September. Uh, so remember that an order of protection is valid for two years if it was served on or after September 24, not issued, but served. So you can actually have one that was older than that, as long as it got served within one year before September 24, 22. That's valid for two years. That did not affect injunctions. Uh, emergency OPs will expire seven calendar days after issuance. We don't do emergency OPs. Jordan, do you do them? Okay, so he gets them, so he cares. <laughs> we don't care about that. Uh, and so he will care about the next pa paragraph, we don't. And then uh, there is a lifetime injunction for felonies. The only thing that that changed for us, since we don't do felonies, is that it changed the definition of harassment. Just the, the previous year, 
the legislature had added a provision that victims of crime uh, could qualify for an injunction against harassment. And the reason they did that is because uh, an injunction against harassment requires a series of acts. Well, if it was a one-time criminal act, then it wouldn't qualify. So that's why that provision was added last year. And then it was taken out this year uh, for the lifetime injunctions, which judges will do at sentencing. Uh, the Supreme Court went back Okay, I just admitted everyone to uh, for people to go back and get those uh, for uh, uh, crimes that were committed in the past, but we're not supposed to see those. All right, so one of the things that the Supreme Court did in their December meeting is they changed the definition of harassment for injunctions. Uh, and that is, this was a professor at ASU who introduced this rule uh, petition. And looking at the statute, uh, it looks like the, we have previously interpreted the statute wrong. Uh, so, uh, in, in how we had interpreted it in the past is that um, the series of acts of harassment had to occur within the previous year for you to consider them. And so that was clarified so that uh, there, there still has to be a series of acts, but only one of those had to occur within the previous year. Now, the other definition of harassment that was added about four or five years ago, the one act of sexual violence is still in the definition as well. And the reason that that, is, um, that, that was adopted is, again, if you were raped by a stranger, uh, that would not have qualified, strictly speaking, for an injunction against harassment because that was just one act. Uh, so, um, and it wouldn't qualify as an order of protection because there wasn't an intimate relationship. So it was added into the injunction against harassment. So for an injunction against harassment, you need to find a series of acts of harassment that occurred, uh, a series of acts of harassment, at least one of which occurred during the previous year, or one act of sexual violence as defined in statute. That's 23371. I've broken that down on a separate page too. I didn't include it in this packet, but if you need it, uh, let me know. And keep in mind for workplace injunctions, it is still just one incident of harassment and workplace doesn't mean you have to be a disgruntled former employee that protects a location or uh, not, not from employer employees. All right, sealing eviction records went into effect on September 24, and we're talking about it again because it continues to raise issues, and I'm going to let Judge Huberman tackle this one. Uh, well, I, I, hopefully there's no more issues. We, we unfortunately realized that when we first set this in place, uh, I mean, I think this brought to the forefront the idea when we realized that all courts do everything differently. You know, I think everybody assumes that your court enters this in, in the computer system is this, and that surely everybody's doing the same thing. But no, that's not how it works. Um, and it turns out that we were missing a lot of the cases because not everyone was doing the entries 
um, into the system in the same way. It turned out to be easier to just change our computer system than to change the way the courts did things. Um, so now we've just broadened the categories. Uh, we think that everything that everybody enters um, <clears throat> as a termination of an eviction case should now trigger the system to automatically seal the cases. Uh, I would just ask that if you realize that your cases are not being sealed for whatever reason, uh, to go back and look at what what is the um, what is the triggering event that the clerks are entering into the ISIS system to see why that's not triggering the uh, the sealing of the record. But how would we know whether it was sealed or not? Uh, you know, you have to check up on it to just you know every once in a you're, you're your, your manager should be getting reports on the ceiling, and Scott has been following it. So you can always contact Scott and say, do you think my court isn't, you know, he'll, he'll tell. I mean, that's how this whole thing started, like there's courts that aren't ceiling. I'm like, how do you know? And then that's when we figure out all these things. So you can always ask to make sure that your numbers look sort of reasonable. Um, or just make sure that you ask your manager, yeah. you know, so the, the, the thing is that a lot of the eviction law firms, when the case has been filed and they want to dismiss it, they will send in a notice of dismissal. Not a motion, so you're never ruling on it. It is just a notice saying, hey, we're dismissing this case. So in my mind, that was a dismissal prior to judgment, which would mean that that record needs to be sealed. So there's some courts that don't enter the notices as such, or they weren't entering the notices and they weren't being sealed because they were only notices and there was no order sealing it. So, which is why, you know, some of the courts created the stamp, you know, ordering it, even though it was a notice, the court would order the dismissal. Um, we just it's across from the other well, elevator bank, and you do have to mash that against the if path. If you enter it now with a notice, it should get sealed on the notice itself. Um, although I know that there's some judges who don't believe that cases that were just noticed should be sealed. Um, I don't know if, they, if there's a way that they can get around not sealing them, because now the ISIS enhancement seals all cases with the notice also. Because those cases <clears throat> that I don't even get in my pile. Right. Um, the clerk's dismissing them by those are by entry are being sealed, correct? They right now, if your clerk is entering it as a notice of dismissal received, they should be getting sealed automatically because okay. now the notice triggering event is now set up to to seal. It didn't used to be in there because we didn't realize that there was a difference between the notice and the dismissal. And just because some some judges were considering them separate things, so now we just have it all included. But. So they were treating them separate than if you were on the bench. If you're on the bench, bench and order either said so they move to dismiss, then you say, yeah. okay, dismiss. But they were treating them differently. They were treating them differently. They were the same. It's just they hadn't got to you, yes. Right. I think for me, they were the same, and they should be sealed just the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the objective that the legislature had, and we have two people here who voted for that, was 
So people will not get harmed by having evictions on their record because when they go to rent in this tight market, that there's so many applicants for any apartment, they will see that you had an eviction or that something had been filed against you and then they will just choose the other person. Um, even though you know that person had paid off their debt or whatever had happened, and so this way, with a sealing of records, they don't even show up on any list. And so they're not put in a worse situation competing against others. That's that's the idea behind it. And so the person whose case was dismissed before it even got to the judge definitely would be deserving of having that case dismissed because they actually took care of it and never even had to come to court. So. The issue is there were some who were putting too much emphasis on the judge entering an order as opposed to the matter actually being dismissed. Right. And so we interpreted it that it's what triggers the ceiling is the dismissal, not the judge ordering. So uh, did you have anything else on that one? No. I'm going to back up to the definition of harassment for injunctions because I, I put that in this. And if you printed it out before I put it in there, sorry, uh, you can just go back. but. Because, um, and I began today with your rule book is already invalid, and I just double checked right now. This has not been corrected online either. Uh, so, uh, this is the only place you're going to see the actual valid definition for injunction against harassment right now because they haven't fixed it online either. All right, so eviction motions to satisfy. Uh, wildfire had. Um, put a rule petition that would have made some drastic changes. The Supreme Court on, in, in their December meeting adopted only a tiny portion of that. Uh, that does require landlords to file a, a notice of satisfaction within 30 days of payment. And it removes the requirement that the tenant show reasonable dil reasonable diligence to find the plaintiff. Did you want to say anything more about that? I, I am amazed sometimes at how it always appears to me that people don't know things when they come to court. But everybody seems to know about this motion to satisfy. I've been getting I have been getting tons of them. Even by the pro court? All by the tenants. Mm -hmm. I mean oh, I, tenants. I am I mean tons. I mean, it's not like I'm getting by the hundreds, but I, you know, I would go years without getting one, and I get two or three filings a day of these now. It is, I, I actually have a stack here in my bag that I brought that I didn't even get a chance. They don't provide the correct information, so you have to go into, into EMS and look at the files, and they don't make it easy on you. Uh, but I am been uh, amazed and actually pleased at the fact that word has somehow gotten out and folks are are, are asking for no one else has seen this i'm not getting from the, from the i i have just been actually amazed at the number of these motions that i've gotten i've been always oh yeah i was gonna say it's no difference what i no, yeah, it's what not I different no I, i've got a ton now all right, so another statute change that went into effect on January 1 is that the prosecutor no longer needs to give you a uh, reason why they are dismissing uh, uh, DUI charges. And then uh, uh, when a petitioner appears on a petition to revoke, the court must make a release determination. Uh, as you know, in Maricopa County, we don't get very many petitions to revoke. Uh, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just 
You should be aware of that. And for release determinations, uh, this actually is a big issue. This is mostly going to be an issue at our I, uh, at for our commissioners and for the video appearance center. Um, but there, there was a rule change that went into effect on January 1 in Rule 6 of the criminal rules. And uh, the rule had previous, while well, the rule still says that you, uh, at or after the initial appearance, you should appoint a, an, uh, an attorney for indigent defendants for the limited purpose of determining release conditions. But then they've added paragraph C now, which says you appoint an attorney for um, uh, indigent people if they are held on bond. And so the question is, is that for the length of the case or not? And so Judge Huberman, what is the current thought on that? So the agreement seems to be, and we've reached out to the county attorney said they were gonna look into it. I don't know if the county attorney really has a, a dog in the fight at all, but they have gotten back to me. But the public defenders agree that right up until now, they were already doing the provisional appointments if the person was being held on bond in the IA court. Um, so the idea is that those will be continued to get the provisional appointment of a public defender. And then if the IA commissioner holds them on bond, then that appointment would turn into uh, a permanent appointment. Um, so if that person then posts the bond and gets out of jail, the public defender will continue the representation of that person because they're still being held on bond, even though they are released because they paid it, the public defenders will remain. If the judge changes the release condition to OR, they have said that they would move to withdraw. When that happens, we'll have to figure it out, how that's gonna be possible. They've already started representing them. How are they gonna stop in the middle? I think that's gonna be an issue. Uh, but I also think this, and, and, and I'm going back here. Today I was trying to think how many people are on the bench have been here longer than me. And I think there's only five uh, people on the bench that have been here longer than I have. Back when I was trained as a judge, um, everyone was just like, just read some more, just read some more, right? It was like every time we did an arraignment, the, that was how we were taught, just mark or. And, and I think that tends to be what a lot of the judges do is just give OR. I, because, because I worked in Superior Court for so long, um, I believe that if a judge made a determination on bond and I don't have any additional information, I don't have a reason to change that release condition. If the IA commissioner decided this person needed to be out on a $200 bond, you need to give me more information for me to just change it to OR. That's my personal opinion. But I will say that if we go around now just changing them all to OR, we might have an issue with the appointment of counsel. And so, unless the person's being held on a $25 bond and they need the money back, if they're on 
they might be better off actually keeping the bond and keeping the public defender on their case. So that's just something that you need to consider when you're determining release conditions. But how does this work? I mean, if a public defender that's over at the jail, <clears throat> then they have to go to the court? If they're released, they'll come to the court and they'll get a public defender in a your court. One. Right. Okay. So I thought there may be... It's... No, but if they're not released, then they get the public defender yeah. of VAC. Yeah, that doesn't affect us, but it's... Right. Yeah. Now, the, the only thing that we've come across, which is interesting, is apparently, at least City of Goodyear, I don't know who else, uses our IA commissioners. And we cannot appoint Maricopa County public defenders for a City of Goodyear defendant. So... I figure that's a problem for Ford and Goodyear, not ours. Well, there, there are other cities that, I think that we're looking well. into which ones they are, but I, th I guess it's not our problem. We just know that, fortunately for us, the public defender's office is one for both justice courts and superior court, so this is not going to be an issue for us. Yeah, and it's not entirely clear what the Supreme Court intended. Uh, what they've done over the last few years is, I mean, ever since fair justice started, really the implication is they don't want people on misdemeanors being held on bond. Uh, and at some point, it, they might just come out and say, uh, thou shalt not hold defendants on misdemeanors. Uh, for those OP violators. <laughs> uh, so, Jordan, has this rule changed changed anything in your court? Uh, yeah. So, while we were at in jail last week, the uh, Superior, Superior Court judge uh, was emailing me in a panic because he didn't realize that this had taken <laughs> And he's like, what are you doing and what are you and Judge Garvin doing because the Superior Court doesn't do initial appearances. We do all the felony and misdemeanor IAs. So um, I, we already created the form and we've already put out the information. Um, I don't know that that made it out to all of the pro tems yet, but it should be coming if it hasn't already. Um, the issue for us is we have contract private attorneys and they pay, I think pay is gonna be an issue, but that's really not an issue for me to worry about, but uh, we'll just eventually not have attorneys to appoint. I don't know what we're going to do as far as typically if I if I've held them on a bond, I'll hold on to the bond. My practice is like I'll hold on to that bond until we conclude the case and I'll give it back to the attorneys. but I I rarely hold people, but if I have to hold them, it's because they just will not come to court. Um, so that's just kind of I mean I, the majority of the bonds that I end up forfeiting in my court are the fifty dollar bonds. Those are the ones. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying the majority. So many of them get really about fifty dollars. Like, who cares for fifty dollars? And so they don't. And I don't think that that's an incentive for them to come and not come. I mean, it's well, and I've never, and I've never set a fifty dollar bond. Right. <laughs> I'm like, it's got to be worth some while, and, and it well, doesn't right, necessarily indicate. But, but I will tell you that in my community, it does. It, they individuals do. You know, these families scrape together this money, and they'll drag them in by their ear, right? right. Usually, mom or grandma or whatever. Right, they're, right. they're coming. Um, but the other, the other issue has been, well, no, it's not. So, yeah, but I had a $500 bond and I had somebody for eight days in jail and I it blew my mind. Yeah. It's only a fraction of what I was driving to spend rebuffed accounts and license and speed, criminal speed. Like, I couldn't figure out why would you have been there for eight days? 
No, I mean, they might have had another case. No, they I might asked have him, been, I, I said, did you have a DUI in a jurisdiction or something that would make sense? But there might be, so that sometimes it, so I don't know about Maricopa County at the commissioner level, but we get public safety assessments. And so we get that extensive history, so I can make a determination. So it might be something nominal, but if they have to appear for for the last 18 misdemeanors that they've got elsewhere, it's usually pretty good indicator that they're not coming close to this one either. I, you can you can check usually if they're if they've been in custody, <coughs> you'll get that AA paperwork that usually has the assessment on it, and it has a questionnaire that they filled out. If you're interested and so inclined to read all that information, right. you should have it in your you should have it in your packet. I'm looking super confused because I don't think I get very many of these. <laughs> but if they come to me for a bond hearing um, because they got arrested and they paid a bond, does that mean they're being held on a bond right now, even though they're right. released? Like they are free. Uh, that's the release condition yeah. is to be on, on the, the bond. On so the if I look at the file and they never appear, never appear, and that's why they had the warrant for that $500 bond that someone else paid and they want that money back, yeah. I could determine, unless you come to your pretrial conference, the next time that we reset this, um, that's when you get your money back. I can, is that what you You keep them on the bond. To, and then no. you have to appoint the attorney at that point. If, if they're you, individuals. If I keep them on the bond and I don't get the bond money back. Now, if they were arrested <laughs> after January 1st, then they should already have that attorney appointed and you just keep the attorney. Okay. But if you are changing a release condition and adding a bond, then you have to appoint the attorney. That's what the rule says. So they've already paid the bond and they're here for that bond hearing, hoping I will get a release and get well, then, what what is that there, at that, that moment? Well, then they're still on bond. I would, bond. I would keep them on the bond. I usually okay. keep them on the bond, especially if they already failed. And if to they don't have somewhere. an attorney, if they don't have an attorney, and I keep them on that bond because I don't believe they'll come back for their pretrial conference. That means that's an point attorney. That's an interesting question. I would say that bond was originally from before January first. No, but. I mean, in the end, you can always appoint an attorney in the interest of justice. But you can also do another arrest warrant. Because a lot of times, it's not them, it's not their money, it's their parents yeah. or it's their, you know, us. Yeah. That, they're the ones holding them accountable to appear. Well, that's so fine. They're they they want our money back, so them. you better they show up. I don't know what they disappear. Right, if you forfeited the bond, and then they show up and give them a new bond, then you give them an attorney. But if you're keeping on that same bond, then I think you have a date issue, but then you're probably getting more forfeitures, right, too. So you give them a new bond, and then they don't, don't pay it. That means you put, well, you just said, if you give them a new bond. You're not giving them, if you if they showed up, and you're just keeping them on the same bond, you're not giving them a new bond. Right, but you're you just said, if you forfeit it to, to the parents who paid it, but you want to keep them the on the bond, you give them a new bond. You right. release it to the parents. The problem is that, for us, it's kind of difficult, because once they're in front of you, they're only in front of you in person. Right. How are you going to set a bond? Unless you see a BAC person and you're like, okay, I'm going to give you a bond. So well, I thought in the release orders it has a, a thing that puts you can do a bond. Right. Yeah, I've never done that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I've never set a bond on anyone who's appeared in front of me. Right. And they're all in front of me. Right. That's what I'm saying. You probably would never do that. That's what I'm saying. Well, the last point I want to make about this is, uh, as it's in there in green, is um, if you're appointing an attorney, it does say indigent. So when you are audited, they're going to look for those financial forms. So unless you say you're doing it in the interest of justice, 
then you do need to have them fill out a financial form. All right, there, another change that's going into effect on March 1 that doesn't affect us since we don't get calls in the middle of the night to do warrants, uh, but there's new rules on no-knock warrants. Uh, Jordan would care. Uh, other counties will care. Uh, thank your lucky stars. We have commissioner, uh, commissioners working 24-7, so you don't get called in the middle of the night. Hey, did, you didn't get called in PV, did you? Yeah. You would? Yeah. All right, well, you're not going to get called anymore. <laughs> All right, and the 10 point fingerprints went into effect, uh, and it is the IA date of January 1. So if you're doing an arraignment, um, we are now, you do need to worry about the 10 print fingerprints. I've attached two charts to your materials. It's supposed to be uh, in ISIS so that you don't need to, to think about it, um, and hopefully someone will nudge you uh, to. to have them uh, get fingerprinted if you forget. Did, did you well, want to... well, we've we've enhanced ISIS, um, and, and mostly for the new judges. As judges, we do not use ISIS. We do not go into ISIS. And if you do have access to ISIS, you only have like calendar view. <laughs> you really can't do anything in ISIS. So the enhancement in ISIS is only for your clerks, but. It should pop up as a banner for them. This is a, an offense that will require fingerprint. Okay. So the idea is that your clerk that's preparing your file for you will see that, include the fingerprint paperwork in your file, and so then for you as a judge, that will be the clue that, oh, I need to get fingerprints on this case. On Thursday, we're going to talk a little bit more about how much the judge needs to get involved with the clerks or and the overseeing and all that. Um, but I will say that this is one thing that you definitely should talk to your managers about to be sure that your clerks are following this procedure, uh, that you are getting those forms in the file. There's a lot of judges, you know, and there was a lot of old school thinking in this, and there still might be some courts out there where, you know, the, 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 the files aren't as prepared for the judges they just assumed that the judges were going to do what needed to be done and maybe expected you to figure out which ones were the fingerprint offenses. I strongly encourage you not to go with that model, no. uh, that, the, that this, you know, the clerks need to prepare the file, that when you are on the bench and you get all the forms, everything you need should be in your file. You shouldn't be reaching over to bins and drawers or whatever putting together what you need. Everything should be in the file. So then your fingerprints will be in there and that will be a trigger for you to order it. Yeah. Well, they have to do is print. And it prints all of them for a criminal. Well, okay. A lot of it just has to do with the way the courts look at what, what the courts do for the judge or what the judges are supposed to do on their own. Um, and so it's not, not because it's difficult or not difficult, it's just a way of, wow. uh, this is a philosophy of working. Um, this, the, the enhancement was set up because only the clerks can get that enhancement that you will need to depend on the clerks giving it to you, is what I'm saying. And then we do have, hopefully, some good news. Um, we are working on actually being able to get the clerks uh, trained 
I'm certified to be able to do the fingerprints in the court, so we no longer have to send them. That's good. You guys. It wasn't so bad for us. Yeah, you guys might want to think about it because it's only a few blocks and they can go. But for people coming, for people coming from Surprise, people from Mesa, you're sending them, you know, even for me from Avondale, you're sending them to downtown to get fingerprinted. This way, and then half the time they don't bring it back, or they lost the paper, or they. This way, you just do it in court, you get it done, and it's done. And there's people that we were supposed um, to get that are going to be in the middle of the kiosk. Well, eventually, if we get the navigators, yeah. maybe the navigators will be trained to be able to do it. But right now, um, so Tracy has already ordered the cards. We already have the cards. And the card holders, we're missing the card holders. But we are we're setting up the trade. She wanted to get. She wanted to learn it first yeah. and make sure that that it worked and how it was before she offered it to the rest of them. Right. So it sounds good. like if it's a cart and the, and the people know how to do it, I guess each court it can just be moved to that court when they. Right. Do I, I don't know how many we're going to get, but. Um, Navigators. Well, the so it turns out that this came about because we found out that Santan Region has been doing this for years. And never shared that information with anyone. Serious. Serious, and we did not know. We thought that it couldn't be done. Yeah. Yeah. We no, I, thought, I couldn't know that. Right. We thought that it was not allowed and we couldn't do it. And I think that this is another point that we'll talk about eventually that, you know, we need to share this information with each other. You know, this idea that, that your court is doing something that's good that could benefit everyone, you know, that shouldn't be something you're keeping to yourself. Um, but I mean, I can get one of the courts while that happened. Well, and just so everybody knows, I worked with the Auditor General to write this language, and this is part of the fallout of the Hacienda healthcare mess because we found people who had nursing licenses who also were convicted of sexual assault. And those crimes weren't being reported into the fingerprint database. So, yeah, I mean, I think the problem, I mean, the sexual crimes were always on our list of fingerprints, the DUI, sexual crimes, and uh, domestic yes. violence. It has now been enhanced to anything that has to do with truthfulness and honesty. Dishonesty, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so now it's like, well, that and we were, we were finding CNAs who were licensed to home health care working with grandma who had credit card forgery. Right, and I, and, I get, and, I, and, I, and I understand I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying that what we see in Michigan in court is like I'll get someone convicted of a theft to the casino because they took a, a, a you know, someone left their, their little card in the slot machine and they didn't claim it and they're like, oh, here's, you know, there's a piece of, it's a piece of paper that comes out of the that says, you know, $100 on it, and they're like, oh, no one's here, I take it, and now they have a theft conviction, and now they need to be fingerprinted. So it's just turned into a big thing for us. Um, of all this list of offenses that we have here, I don't know how many are really going to affect us. I think mostly the theft might be the ones that giving false information to police officers. I think those might be the big ones that are, are going to affect us. <clears throat> Um, and if that's the case, you'll learn them very quickly and you'll know it over the way. But these these offenses came directly out of DPS's fingerprint clearance card. So these are required for the DPS clearance card. Okay. 
Okay. All right, there's a new condition of release if someone has been uh, uh, has charges regarding um, animal cruelty, uh, then there is a new provision you're supposed to check on not possessing or having contact with an animal. Okay. All right, so I've had a tenure that I've had two animals. Yeah. Tenure, but I know that there, there might be some areas like if you have horse I, I properties. Gerald gets them, Kathy yeah. Riggs gets them. Right, yeah. it depends on the areas you might get them. All right, so sealing of criminal records is something that the legislature gave us. Legislature gave us like a whole year to get ready for, and it seems like we still haven't figured everything out. This is second chance. No, no, no. Second chance is a whole different thing. That's why we're doing this. This, this is because we're going to get to what you need to talk about at sentencing, and there's a lot more now. So this is sealing of criminal records. Uh, this was adopted in 2021 and didn't go into effect until January 1st. Uh, and you have um, defendants can apply to have their records sealed. Judges will be required to mention this on the record when sentencing and to provide notice in writing. So uh, the legislature added 13-911. The Supreme Court added Rule 36.1. And so a defendant may file a petition if they've completed all terms and conditions of their sentence or if they were found not guilty or charges were dismissed or if they were arrested but no charges were filed. And defendants may apply no sooner than three years for a class one misdemeanor, two years for a class two or class three misdemeanor, or after and after completion of probation or discharge of their sentence. And there's no, uh, there's no reference to petty offenses here. So some interpret that that you comply to have a petty offense sealed immediately. Um, I think they uh, forgot and you can't have a petty offense sealed. If they have another five-year felony conviction, if they have a five-year, if they have a prior felony conviction, they must wait another five years. So uh, they couldn't, so that would be like eight years for a class one if they have a prior felony. But how would we deal with that? And that's one of the problems. They cannot have subsequent, a subsequent conviction except for non-DOI Title 28 convictions. And then there are several disqualifying dangerous felonies, um, but also any offense that has any of the following as an element of the offense, the discharge, use, or threatening exhibition of a deadly weapon or, de or dangerous instrument, or the knowing infliction of serious physical injury. And it can still be used as a prior offense. Okay, it's, there we go. It can still be used as a prior offense to enhance or to impeach. The uh, petition must be filed in the court where they were convicted or where the IA occurred if no charges were filed. If the complaint is filed in justice court, but the information was filed in superior court, then it must be filed in superior. If there was no IA, then it goes to superior. So they're going to get more of these than we are. The state and victims have 30 days to respond. This cannot be granted while pending other criminal charges. So Ken, what is your question? <laughs> how, do, how do we know that? 
and the court need not hold a hearing unless the petitioner, state, or victim requests one. If you do hold a hearing, then you must allow the victims to be heard. And the court must seal if it is in the best interest of the petitioner and the public safety. Now, how in the world is sealing this in the best interest of public safety? I have, don't know. Uh, if you deny, it is appealable. Uh, and again, Rule 36.1 was added. Take time and read that. Uh, and uh, so others, including Judge Huberman, have raised this issue, uh, that the timeframes talk about the completion of the terms of your sentence. Uh, it doesn't say what the time frame is uh, if the charges were dismissed or never filed. I interpret it that you still have to wait that time frame. Uh, there still has to be that application. They still have to be crime-free, uh, that you want to do check all those things out. Others may interpret it differently. Uh, the Supreme Court does have a great website that does walk through a lot of this. And there's the link for that. Did you want to address? So well, what I want to say is, first of all, that the, right now we get requests for setting aside convictions. Those you give to the prosecutor, you get it back. The prosecutor usually says, take so it and you make a decision. This has more requirements. You have to go through the process that is required. So be sure you understand that. Um, and one of those is to do the background check. So originally we were told that these background checks had to go through DPS, well they have to be through DPS, and that DPS was not going to do the background checks for us. So Superior Court was looking into having background checks done by the probation department. And so I asked, well, if Justice Court could piggyback on that, and if they would allow us to do it through them also. But last week at a meeting that we had with the presiding judges, um, it, 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 it seems that some courts have gotten a lot of these requests already, and we're only two, two weeks into the year. Justice courts? No, city courts. City courts. I, I don't even know the superior court. City courts, they've had, what do they say, that some of them had 12, 15, 20, like he had a lot and Chandler had some. So they've been getting them, so Brian only had three. So I was gonna ask if anyone here, if any of one of us had gotten any, because I haven't received one. Which uh, I think I had. You had two. Um, so half of the city courts said that they couldn't, they sent the request to DPS and got nothing back. And he said that they sent the request for to DPS and they got it back within the day. So we don't know. Right now, I have finally gotten a form that DPS. So they sent us a form that supposedly was created by DPS. At first, I was like, I didn't believe it because the form nowhere says DPS, except that it has a website on it. It's no seal, no letterhead, it's just a piece of paper. But I was assured that this is the form that DPS created for this. So I will, I should have sent it out with the materials for the bench meeting, I forgot. But I'll make sure that everybody gets that form. And that is the form that we should be using 
to send the request to DBS so you can get them. <coughs> the background. If you don't get them, let me know because this is something we're gonna have to follow up on if they were, if they're not responding to our request. So is this something that we're gonna be adding to complete uh, the um, response? Yes. Okay. Wow. Well, let's, take, let's take 33 off because I understand the advisory. Just let them know, just like you let them know that they have a right to set aside, uh -huh. you let them know that they, they have a right to set aside. Oh. Yeah. So a little bit. Right. Um, but I did, you just, I just said it in the same paragraph when I said now you have a right to set aside, and then after you completed your sentence and sufficient time has come by, well, but I will send out that form. I would suggest that I think it'll be easier if we all use that form because it was the one that DPS requested we use. Um, I'm going to reach out to our liaison just to be sure, but, uh, but if anyone does use the form, does request the background check and they're not getting back the information, please let me know right away because this is something that we need to follow up on as, as, as an organization. When they sent the request to set aside, there was no time frame for that. They could ask for it as soon as they completed the terms of the agreement. But now, with ceiling, that's when we have the three years, two years. Okay. And, and I think the, the. Well, it was set aside as long as they completed the terms of their sentence. If they were put on probation, then they had to complete that. So the DUIs are excluded from that? Pardon me? DUIs are excluded or included at all? No, they can have those seals. My only question was, if you're DUI, you're supposed to have an interlock for 12 months, even though we as a court don't verify that, does that count as completing your sentence or not? Only if it's for reducing jail time, but not the A1, right? What does the A1 with the interlock? No, the A1 is a statutory requirement. You don't, you don't. Yeah. Every day does it, we don't ever see that. Oh, okay, I was going to say, I've never seen So does that count as completing your sentence? Yeah. Does that not count as that? I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of yeah. I don't know, Gerald, have you thought about that? Yeah, I, I haven't thought about, I haven't thought about the interlock Gerald. issue. Um, I, I was curious as to what, we're supposed to tell people when they plead guilty, because we can say you, you have a right to have your conviction sealed. Uh, another part of the statute says they have the ability to lie on applications, but so many law enforcement agencies and government agencies have access to the record that they also have the ability to get caught in the lie. And so are, are we supposed to say, you have a right to have your record sealed and just leave it at that, or do we explain anything further? <clears throat> and and uh, Gerald, let me uh, say one of the drawbacks of doing this meeting hybrid is uh, those of us in this room, unless we have a separate computer that's linked into the meeting, can't see the chat. So we didn't get, you know, thank you for repeating that. I was going to have you repeat that. Um, but no, I, I don't think you go into more detail than you can apply to seal. Uh, don't, you know, and, and we can give them the website, we can give them an information page, but, but I'm not going to go into more detail than that. Why is that? Why? Right. Oh. Well, literally, if you read it, 
I mean, at the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> people don't read what we tell them to read. They do what I'm saying, but if you read it out loud. If you read the statute and yeah. you don't interpret it yourself. I know, I'm not saying that. I'm just talking about reading the statute. Right, but well, I'm just saying, because you have these issues with interpretation yeah. that, you know, Charles believes that. Well, I just want to come in like in a month after this. No, you tell them that they have to wait. For oh, okay, so you can say that. Time. That's what I'm talking about. It's time here. But I'm saying, what do you get to say on a job application if it says you have a prior conviction? What do you get to I, no, say? No, no, I wouldn't I talk about that. No, 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 I'm not talking about the, the I think I think that's what Gerald's uh, saying. Like you don't want to get into no, that. No, I, I, I think you, I, you, have the, <laughs> you right, have the right to petition the court to seal your records, and you can consult an attorney as to what exactly that means. Right. So what you need to do when you are sentencing now uh, for a plea agreement, you have to tell about the right to file a petition for post-conviction relief and a petition for review pursuant to Criminal Rule 33. Uh, following the completion of your sentence, you have the right to file a petition to set aside, and you may also qualify for a certificate of second chance pursuant to 13905. And then... Um, either three years or at least three years or uh, for a class three or one uh, or two years for a class one or two, following the completion of all terms of your sentence, you may file a petition to seal pursuant to criminal mm -hmm. rule 36.1. And I, I would say at least because we don't know, we're taking the plea, we don't know if they have any felonies and so they have to wait another five years. We. We don't know the circumstances, so use the highest number. So uh, you could, you know, just always say at least three years from now, or at least three years from completing the terms of your sentence, you can file a petition to set aside. If that petition to set aside is denied, um, then they have to wait another another three years before they can file. Not I said set aside. If that petition to seal is is denied, then they have to wait another three years. Um, you can argue that if it's denied for a technical reason that they don't have to wait another three years, but that's another interpretation thing you can do. And, and I'm sorry, I meant to say this earlier about the, the number of petitions to seal that are being filed. It's actually funny because when the Prop 2.0 whatever for marijuana expungements went into effect, we got almost no applications for expungement of marijuana convictions. And I think it's because people were still high uh, so they didn't realize that they could do that. I would change the, the petition or the, um, the form to say have those three instead of just the two. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and we need to keep our terminology straight. So, there's a petition to set aside. Um, there's a certificate of second chance. There's a petition for post-conviction relief, and there's a petition to seal. And then for marijuana and possession of possession of marijuana paraphernalia charges they can petition to expunge. And just so everyone can anticipate the next legislative session, they are again looking into fixing the second chance language. So we'll wait for that too. First one. Well, because they realized that it was an issue and, and they're looking into actually not allowing certificates for second chance or certain things. Yeah, so I think the, the AOC is backing that language. But they never change it that it has, the first one has to be, shall be, a second chance? The, the way the statute is written is if you grant a petition to set aside, you must issue yeah. a certificate of second chance if they have not received one before. Yeah, and I don't but know. They haven't changed that, though. I don't know. That no, hasn't but, changed. But they're looking into changing. What they're looking into changing is 
that they don't get uh, more than one certificate for a second chance. For a felony. That's clear. For that, that what they're looking to change is that we could, for misdemeanors, there'd be no limit. Right. So a, if for a set aside, we would automatically give them a certificate of second chance. Uh, so that just eliminates the issue yeah, that you're talking about, huh? right? Judge Kissel wants to say something. What? Kissel? Yes. There's a comment. I, I just had a question. I apologize, Charles. I didn't mean to break your flow. Uh, if the charge in question was expunged to Gerald's question about making false statements, expungement would not require reporting. Is that correct? Is, is that the way to think of the difference between sealed versus expunged? The way to think of the difference is expungement only applies to marijuana and nothing else. Right. Don't, don't even. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I, I just often have. Right. And that's. And so, so to Gerald's question, where a person would would have to report on an application, if it was expunged, it would not have to be reported. Would be my understanding. And my understanding is, I'm not giving legal advice. Right. <laughs> you can consult an you can consult an attorney as to what sealing sure. your okay. criminal record Remember means. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm not going to make that call for you. All right, and then I've got a different slide. So the first one was plea agreements. This one is sentencing. Charlie, can I ask a question about the sealing first? Yes. I, I thought, uh, or uh, set aside, I thought I had an application where they asked for set aside, and I thought I remember seeing a question of whether they were asking for a second chance. Was that on there? Because they did not mark that, if I recall that. They don't ask, they don't have to ask for it. You are required to grant one if they have not received one before. All right, so um, the, in this one, there's a different slide here. If you're sentencing after a trial as opposed to a plea agreement, so after a trial, you have to add the right to an appeal, pursuant to Rule 31, the right to appeal. And then um, that right to petition, that's not a typo. That is criminal Rule 32. Remember a couple of years ago, 32 is broken into 32 and 33. So the petition for post-conviction relief following a trial is Rule 32, not 33. And then the other two portions are the same. Um, and uh, and actually, if you connect the dots on the rules, you actually have to tell people when you're sentencing them following a plea agreement that they have right to appeal, uh, even though they don't have the right to appeal. Um, but the way that the matters are defined in rules, you do, but I'm not going to tell you to do that. So but that's one of the... The things you say, you've given up your right to appeal. Right, but, but, -conviction but if you look at the definition of sentencing and everything in, in the rules, you actually have to tell people that they have the right to appeal after telling them they don't have the right to appeal. All right, so one of the other things um, that went into effect on January 1 is if there are different items on a traffic citation, MVD is going to assess points only on the most serious one. So if it's a DUI, that is eight points, and all of the other stuff, uh, they're not going to get any points on that. If there's speeding and running a red light, uh, they're only going to get the three points for speeding. They're not going to get the two points for the red light, but they're still going to have to do traffic survival school for the red light. All right, so the other thing, if, you're, if you're not convinced that your books are useless now, on July 1st, they're absolutely useless because, uh, and this, this, this petition had been hanging around for a few years. I actually thought the Supreme Court was never going to grant it, and they went ahead and granted it. So uh, in addition to Rule 39, which covers victims' rights, 
their victims' rights language is now going to be interspersed into many criminal rules as Section B. Um, so it'll be there on the rules for uh, for initial appearances. It'll be there on the rules for arraignments. It'll be there on the change of plea rules, um, basically reminding you that the victim has the right to be there and has the right to, to be heard. All right. And... Some of you were anxiously awaiting Prop 209. Uh, so let's talk about Prop 209 that went into effect on December 5, that lowered the garnishment rate percentages and um, used the highest minimum wage rate. There is a question on when the lower rates go into effect. The, uh, uh, the um, language on when it went into effect for garnishment rates isn't clear. Some would argue the date of the writ. That is what our best practice came down on. Some would say date of the judgment. Uh, and the collection attorneys want to use the date of the contract or tort. Uh, there's no support for tort, because nowhere does it talk about torts. It's all about medical debt <coughs> contracts. Um, so that, um, but while the TRO was in effect, that is the language that was actually adopted. The TRO is gone. Uh, so our best practice says look at the date of the writ. If it's interpreted to be the date of the contract being um, on or after December 5, 2022, we would have two garnishment laws in effect for the rest of eternity because we will never know when all of the debt um, that was entered into before December 5, 2022 has actually been uh, collected. So, so, um, Charlie, goes back. <clears throat> so, when they're determining the amount of garnishment, they're using the federal. Is okay, let's, let's wait, wait. Okay, that's here. Okay. So, I'm just wondering if it's still some aid for those before the writs, before the writs, before December. If, 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 you, if you are one of those wise judges who relies on our best practices, uh, and you are, right? <laughs> of, okay, so what's a Flagstaff business? Purina has a Flagstaff, or, or NAU is based in Flagstaff, mm -hmm. but they have branches around the state. So if you work for NAU in Phoenix, your paycheck comes out of Flagstaff, you live and work in Phoenix, do you use the Flagstaff minimum wage or the uh, state minimum wage? Don't know. Uh, that they, they can litigate that. And we don't usually see the worksheets. Very few of them send it we, to us. We're not gonna, we don't normally see the yeah. worksheets. But my question is, so for all, when they do these for the garnishment, it's now the higher rate, not the 780? Or is it just for those? If you cases? follow the best practice, if the writ was filed after December 5, okay, they, should so be, just, uh, they should be garnishing at the lower rate. Lower rates. But a lot of times they'll file the writ. You have to go back to 
when the writ was originally filed. And sometimes they'd file two or three um, of garnishments. And so I assume you just look at the last word? The most recent writ. Right. The most recent writ, okay. So yeah, so line number seven, that would change to 10%, uh, no more than 10%, no less than 5%. <coughs> Currently it's 25% or no less than 15%. So can I ask Ken, you're an employer. Yeah. Do you do, I mean, I don't know, do you have a payroll person or yes. do you do payroll? I do my payroll. So do you do, you do garnishment? Um, yes, I, well, mostly they're because of non-payment of, you know, spousal benefits or for ch ch uh, child support. Oh, but not these. Exactly. No. I mean, how, I've how never had one of these. Okay. I was just going to say, how does the employer know what rate to withhold? They won't. Yeah, they're the, the, got to get the right These form. people got to start changing their garnish. forms now. Yeah, well, they, they give you the form? Well, that's yeah, they form. yeah, they send you a form. They said you send one of these to the um, your employee. Well, it comes to the state the packet, and, right? So, like, our up? court, when they file the writ, the court gives them a packet, right? And, and that packet has this that. worksheet in it, and that's why they're going to be able to give the right worksheet? Or do you think there's just attorneys that... I think there's attorneys that use their own forms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, when, when we get the requests, they never tell us what the percentage is. And so my concern is, how is the the yeah. garnishee, the employer... That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm worried about the garnishee. So to know, and how... Are, yeah. They usually will write it in, but that's up to them to write it in. I have a small business and we use ADP to process our payroll and ADP has already integrated all of these. Oh, yeah. So they, they've adopted the lower rates? Good. They, they, they integrated all of the new state statutes into their software. Oh, good. So, right. so they've lowered the rates? So at least those people will be right. I'm sure they It said 10% yeah. instead of 25%. Well, they did. I mean, they, they interpreted their way of interpreting it, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they did what they, 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 they kind of guesstimated based on what the statute language was and adjusted their formulas within their But a lot of small businesses. Well, golly, the collection attorneys all, all thought <laughs> that we were crazy for thinking that it immediately got lowered. Um, they uh, vociferously argued that it didn't go into effect. Well, the fact is they're still appealing it. They, uh, actually, they I don't know. Did, oh, did they, they Gerald? Did they appeal? They they threatened to appeal, but I haven't seen anything. I I haven't seen if they had appealed. If if they did, it's going to take so long that the appeal will almost be irrelevant. Because um, there's, there's going to be an established force already in place, and I I just don't right, see anything but, changing. But but the the question is the the lower court didn't actually interpret the the proposition. They just said it it wasn't unduly whatever ambiguous, ambiguous and that we could use it. So I think I still they still have a room to make their argument. But he, interpret, he he interpreted at the beginning of how we to this point moving forward. So don't you think what is when he put a stay on it, that's kind of yeah, uh, one would yeah, he got it wrong at first, and so I, I went into a depression for a couple of years, <laughs> thinking I didn't know what I was talking about. And then he corrected it after that and said, um, it "said it's not unclear." And by the way, the the previous time the garnishment rates were changed, they went into effect immediately. Uh, so it's like, yes. So. <laughs> 
I mean, I'm just wondering if some judges are still going to get some arguments or not from this. Of course. Oh, they absolutely will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to hear about it until the hardship hearing, where, you know, if, if, if they come in and ask you for a hardship hearing because the the, ten, uh, the defendant wants it lowered to 15%, it's like, oh, we got a problem here. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. we should be talking about 5%. So, so should we, I mean, you work with these attorneys in your work group. Should we be getting a, a copy maybe of their packets and see what they're sending to the... You, 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 we don't want to go that far? No. no. Okay. No, they've disappeared. But, um, we haven't had any work group meetings since the lawsuit. Um, um, <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. And, well, and, and the funniest thing is when they made the argument that because of the federal debt collector's law, that they could list the licenses if they garnish at the wrong rate. And so the, the uh, attorney representing the proposition writer said, well, just garnish at the lower rate. <laughs> yes, and the judge didn't buy that initially. So, uh, but he has bought it now. So, garnish at the lower rate. Mr. Blanchard. Judge Blanchard. All right. The last uh, thing that I wanted to talk about is State versus Stowe, because you're going to hear this um, argument. They just talked about this at the presiding judge meeting, mm -hmm. and I missed that meeting. So, uh, do you want to tell us what the latest is on State versus Stowe? Okay, and, and, and let, me, let, me, let me lay the groundwork for the new judges. So for a DUI, um, the legislature added 281382 I-5 a few years ago. And what I-5 says is if you agree to install an interlock and comply with the interlock, um, we will suspend some of your mandatory jail time. And so there was a defendant in Superior Court who uh, went to court saying, well, I can't afford a car, so I can't um, get the interlock, so you should go ahead and suspend the jail time anyway. And a Superior Court judge agreed, uh, and the Court of Appeals agreed. <coughs> or no, the Superior Court judge did not agree, but the Court of Appeals agreed that, golly, even though the statute says you don't get to have your jail time suspended unless you install the interlock that even if you don't install the interlock, you can have your jail time suspended. Mm -hmm. So what was the latest thinking? <clears throat> well, the, the, the city courts agree with you. Hmm. Um, I agree with the appellate because we were the I, 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 I also, I also agree with the appellate, but I mean, <clears throat> in the end, and we've talked about this best practices and, and, and maybe I'm gonna, suck Gerald into this conversation is, you know, what we want is to at least come out as a bench more uniform in our in our decisions. You know, it, it makes it really difficult that if you were stopped <clears throat> north of northern, you get one result and south of northern, you get a different one when you were on the same freeway, right? I mean, I get it that we all have discretion and every judge Gets to make their decisions, and we don't we don't want to turn into you know that we're also standardized that whatever we decide doesn't really matter, but you don't want the outcomes to be so uh, different from one court to another, which is you know what used to happen with home detention and all that that the city courts got home detention, the county courts never did, and and it was you know a disparity that was incredibly unfair. Um, but if we go against the city courts, then we're going to end up with that disparity again. So, 
I mean, I think it's something that we still yeah, probably might want to resolve as a bench. The Superior Court decision, how is it even a question of which one you interpret? Well, so the the thing is that the way the city courts are looking at it is that this guy was on probation. And that because there's a probation department that is supervising to determine if the person is <laughs> driving or not driving, well, they don't either. And so they're like, well, that distinguishes Stowe from our defendant. And so... That Stowe does not apply. You're asking how they made that leap? That's how they made it. That's why they say it doesn't apply because the fact pattern because they don't like it. doesn't apply. They just don't like the decision. So. Well, no, because they're reading the statute. Well, the one that said then we're, what we're going to do, though, to make that clear is we won't have that hearing until a year after. So if it shows, like, you're not going to say, on the day of your sentencing, well, I don't have a car, so I can't get that. Right. Like, okay, then fine, you don't have no, to. No, but you wait a whole year of those 12 months that would have passed, and then they were saying, then you have a hearing to try to determine if they haven't driven for all those whole, you know, 12 months. I guess well, the only way you know if they haven't had any violations during the 12 months, but... But I think you still put the onus on the defendant. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell them to bring their NBR to make sure they haven't had uh, a driving violation in that time. Uh, you may, you know, bring I mean, who drove you around, maybe some bus ticket. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or, if you have a horse, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, in the end, you're going to have to believe yeah. them or not, but, right. you know, and so you have a hearing mm -hmm. and, and ask the, the pertinent question. I think, I think the problem that has happened, like, to me, and I think a lot of us, we've talked about this before, is that we have so many defendants that we can't get them to close their cases because they don't have a car and haven't installed the interlock. Sure. I mean, I have one guy who used to my court every four months. I'd set it for a review hearing, and I mean, but when I finally, when he was allowed to do it, you know, virtually, it was like he didn't even have to try to get a ride to come, to tell me, I'm still working, I'm saving all my money, I'm trying to buy a car. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, of course couldn't save money because he couldn't work because he didn't have a car to go to work. I mean, and, and so when Stowe came out, my first thought was this guy totally deserved that because he stayed in touch with me for years. He didn't even, you know, a lot of them just drop off the, 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 the map and you never see them again until at some point you issue a warrant because they never put in their interlock. But this guy contacted me every four months and I'm like, this Stowe decision was for him. And but, so it's like, how do you? But it was only that, I mean, we were there when they created the interlock. And, and mandatory insurance did not exist in you know, the first time in the legislature. And the intention was never to be punitive. He was trying to make sure that during that year they did not drive, you know, drunk. That was the only purpose. Okay, Ken, what, what you're not considering is there's mandatory jail. That is punitive, all right? The whole, the whole purpose of mandatory jail is to punish. The interlock was, was incentivized. The interlock was the carrot to get the, uh, was the carrot to get suspended jail time from the mandatory jail. But it was so, so doing, doing the interlock is not the punishment, it's getting the suspended jail time that is the carrot. I understand that, but at the same time, I don't think if somebody cannot afford it that their lives are going to be ruined, I mean. <clears throat> well then why did you do the mandatory jail time? I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was not there. Then. Because if, if that was added after we 
So what they could have just done is taken 34 days off of the mandatory jail time and said nothing about the interlock. But they didn't do that. The interlock is the carrot to get suspended jail time. Well, the mandatory jail time is because of the private prisons trying to get more people into the prisons. Because you don't want people driving drunk on the street. No, but that was exactly what you want. really what you want to say. Don't drive, kill people. At the end of sentencing for any type of crime is punishment. That's clear. I mean, the DUI has elements of punishment and elements of rehabilitation in it, which is, you know, the counseling or the even the interlock itself. These are all, you know, measures of rehabilitation. But there is an element of punishment, which is why there's more jail time, the higher level of DUI. And so I think, I mean, and I get Charles's point. What he's saying is this person is now not being punished as opposed to someone else who is, you know. But I guess, you know, my argument is always you're just punishing the poor people and never the rich people. Yes. And that's, but that just is inherently unfair. We call them in and we say, if you don't do this, then we're going to have to, you're going to have to finish your jail sentence. I do say that, you know, when we bring them in and we haven't done it within a certain amount of months. You know, we call them in on that. So we do try to make them. Oh, well, then you don't agree with Stowe. Yes, I do agree with Stowe. <laughs> You're going to make them after a year and they cannot okay. afford it, that we should not punish them because it's expensive. I mean, Stowe doesn't say when you need to make the determination. What, what I think everyone is clear is that we're not going to allow them to railroad you into making that decision on the day of sentencing to say, oh, no, I wouldn't tell them. I would never tell them. I mean, I think that a lot of attorneys are going to give you that argument. I, yeah, you, but, you can't tell them. Right, that's what I'm saying. Mm, that that's, that's the one that you don't want to fall into. No. But I, so okay, many people, I mean, that is expensive. And they right, cannot afford it. Because you're All right. Gerald? Yes. The suspension of jail for interlock was put in way after the interlock requirement. The suspension for jail for interlock was put in because someone did a study and everyone realized that no one was bothering to get an interlock. They just continued to drive on a suspended license and nobody cared. And so the uh, reason that, yes, the, it was Linda Gray's bill, I remember it, MAD brought their national president in to testify against it. It was a huge deal because they were saying that if you're giving people credit um, for getting an interlock early, your Arizona is becoming soft on DUI. This this was a, a big, big deal. Um, and so the whole point, because you have to get an interlock anyway to get a driver's license again, that requirement has never gone away, even with Stowe. The, there was a there was a policy decision that we can encourage people to get an interlock um, and actually get one and get one sooner in the process if we shave significant amounts of, of, of their jail time off. What Snow did, and, and Snow not only was on probation, his probation officer recommended this. And so this was a, a really very unique kind of fact pattern where someone's saying, you know, hey, um, this person has, has done everything they possibly can do, 
to comply with with this requirement. So the probate the probation officer was the one that was recommending that that the person get credit for having an interlock device, even though they never got even though they actually got an interlock device. At some point, if they ever want a driver's license, they'll have to get an interlock. So the only question is, at, at, at how do they get credit? Do, do we give people credit for getting an interlock device when they're not getting an interlock? And that's the issue. And the only thing we can do maybe is at the time of sentencing, have uh, set a hearing a year from now from the date of the sentencing, and they're going to have to try to prove the negative that they didn't drive for a year. And I, I, I wish people luck on doing that. Um, so that's that's the issue. The argument that we get from defense counsel now is he promises not to drive for a year, so should, you should just not impose the additional jail time now. Yeah, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I don't think any of us would do that. All right. Do we have any other questions from uh, the Everything New is New Again presentation? Thank you. That one took a little longer than we thought it would, <laughs> but we powered yeah. through. Uh, I'll just remind everyone, too, that there is still no work release. Uh, so. Um, yeah, and, and, and a little bit to Gerald's point and to this whole thing with the city courts. Um, city courts still have people waiting since before the pandemic to do their jail time because there's no work release. So I know a judge who sentenced a person to like 72 weekends um, because there's no work release. Um, but part of this, the agreement with the state was that he'd be able to work because he'd have to pay off this huge restitution. So he did all these, you know, things he had to sign, like 70 of them, if they were the orders of confinement. But the jail doesn't like that. And so they've been rejecting the person. So it had to come back and they had to do something different. But anyways, that's, that's been... Well, and the problem before any of you do that is, is that um, every time you do, every time you break up the jail sentence, there's a new booking fee. The first day is over $500, and then other days are about 100 something. Um, well, this was in Superior Court. Yeah, so, yeah, for, for the justice <laughs> court. <laughs> but the, the point here is that if, we, if we're sending someone, you know, I guess the most you could do is 180 days if you have a, a super stream with a prior. Or do we know why they're not doing it? Um, and they're doing they're doing 20%, so they're only doing 36 days and the rest on home detention. That well, the city courts aren't doing it because they pay for it. They, so, they pay for it if the defendant does not. And right, and so they don't want to send them and they're just waiting for them to do even those 36 days, which is the most that they can get, still but what was what's holding up home detention? No, they're doing, they have the whole detention. They just wanted to be able to do work release on that part that they're going to jail. And they have I, I really to detention for three years, I'm sorry. Who's the jail, so the, the jail's argument yeah, is it, that... It's more, it takes more time. No, no, no. Their argument is that they're following CDC guidelines for when home detention can be used. Can someone open the door for jerk? And that CDC guidelines have not changed and that they cannot yet do work release. 
That's, that's the argument. My, my understanding is that the jail doesn't want to go back to work release. That's what I'm assuming, yeah. Because this is work for them, and now that we have home detention, and they help us get the home detention. People need work release. Yeah. They, so, um, the work release isn't though just for us, because you know, work release is for, you know, superior court. Superior court that you're, you're, you're given, you know, probation with six months jail for for charge for whatever it is, but you can do work release while you're there. And now they don't have that either. So, is this a, a county policy or is this the Department of Corrections policy? No, this is the county jail. Okay. This is the county jail. So right now it doesn't look like. In the other counties, do they have work release? They do. Yeah, yeah, Yuma County, for example, we heard yeah, they, they, they do office. allow it. But the problem is, how are you going to work? Even if you have work release in Yuma, if you work here, you can't go back and forth from Yuma. No, but there's a lot of people, when it keeps them yeah. that they lose their job, obviously. If they don't have work release. And there is no alternative for mandatory jail. No, no, I understand. I'm just saying, I don't understand why they don't well. be more. Is Penzone in charge of the jail? Yeah, Penzone is in charge of the jail. They're putting this on the medical part of it. Why don't we go ahead and take a 10 minute break and come back? Just so that nobody accuses me of doing the math wrong at 11.03. Stop reporting.